Matthew chapter 18 is our text, uh, verses 1 through 14, as we start this remarkable chapter. Go ahead and navigate over there on your device or open your Bible. The topic, Jesus instructs us to remain childlike while waiting for him to return for us. The title of our message, I'm a God's for us kid. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we've had a remarkable morning already. We've enjoyed fellowship with the saints. You've given us an opportunity to worship you in singing as a congregation. What a sweet time that was, Lord. And now we have your word open before us and we have the promise that you're here in our midst. Multiple promises in your word, Lord, that you would be here with us as we gather together. Those of us that are saved have the indwelling Holy Spirit to be our teacher. We're poised and ready to hear what the Spirit says to us and to the church. Use this text, Lord, in a powerful way, we pray in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Want to feel like a kid again? You might need to travel to Peru. That's one suggestion. One McDonald's in Lima is hoping to make you feel like a kid again. They're installing a huge counter that forces adults to reach way up to pay their bill and grab their food. They want you to feel like a kid again. I'm going to feel like an angry adult (laughs) trying to reach up and grab my food. Uh, It's crazy. If that won't do it, which it doesn't sound like it will, maybe a life-size drivable Mario Kart will make you feel like a kid again. Battery-powered cart features forward and reverse, on and off-road tires, a seat belt, and a brake pedal system. Comes loaded with sound effects from the famous video game. I was getting pretty excited until I saw that it had a top speed of two and a half miles an hour. (laughs) I got to thinking about feeling like a kid because of something Jesus says in our text. Look at verses three and four where he says, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children... You will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. According to Jesus, we are to become and remain childlike. He then warns about severe consequences if we are not childlike or if we somehow mistreat those who are. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, get back to thinking of yourself as a little child. And number two, go forward treating everyone as little children. Let's take a look at verses one through four first, getting back to thinking of ourselves as little children. Now the child Jesus has in mind is a child at his or her best. He's not talking about a spoiled child or one we'd call a brat. He's not referring to the kid who ruined the movie for you by throwing a tantrum or who was slugging his mother in line at Walmart. There's plenty of those. We're in a section of the Gospel of Matthew in which Jesus was revealing a mystery to his disciples. Because Israel's leaders would reject him as their king, he would not at that time establish the kingdom of heaven on the earth that the Jews were promised in their scriptures. Jesus would be crucified and buried. He would rise from the dead on the third day and then 40 days later ascend into heaven. He would be returning and in his second coming to the earth, he will establish the kingdom. The disciples, including us, them and all disciples after them, right up until the present day, we live between these comings as the members of something totally new, the church. While we wait for Jesus to return for us, we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, but we live on a hostile earth that is still under the sway of the devil. Jesus has been giving us instruction on how to live during this perilous delay. 
The instruction he gives in this section is in some ways the most unusual thus far because he tells us he wants us to remain childlike. And so verse one says, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The boys wanted some clarification. They'd seen Peter, James, and John go up the mountain with Jesus while the nine of them remained behind. Then Peter had been singled out by the enemies of Jesus to ask if the Lord had paid his temple tax, so they were seeing him as some sort of a leader or spokesman. And then Jesus sent Peter to catch a fish that had money in its mouth with which to pay that tax. It seemed as though there were a flow chart emerging with Peter and then James and John taking prominence. Not true, but that's the way the disciples thought. It's sad that they were thinking that way because Jesus had been speaking to them of his abasement and they were speaking to him of their advancement. They weren't getting what was really going to be taking place. Uh, And so Jesus is going to try to show them with this illustration. So in verse two, Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them and said, assuredly I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, since they were most likely at Peter's house in Capernaum, there's always been speculation that this was one of Peter's children. We can't know for sure. Converted and become as little children is another metaphor for getting saved. Uh, There are a lot of different illustrations or metaphors for what it means to come to Jesus Christ and be saved. And uh, it's not unlike Jesus telling Nicodemus, you must be born again as a way of illustrating what it means to be saved. We would say that you must be born again to become a child of God. Have you been born again? This is a great question just to pause on right now. If you're here and you've never been born again, you've never been converted, you've never been saved, you've never come to the cross, Jesus has never really forgiven you your sins because you've asked and confessed them and repented of them, then you should deal with that right now. You need this spiritual birth to become a child of God. Now, verse four, therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The disciples were concerned about greatness, meaning position and prominence and power in the kingdom. A child has no position, no prominence, no power in a kingdom. They must be protected and cared for by others. Sadly, tragically, even in many countries, children are neglected or exploited. They are treated as mere property. And so this is kind of an, uh, you see how unusual this is. When Jesus says we're gonna have a kingdom, it's not gonna be like any kingdom you've ever seen before. In fact, you have to be childlike in this kingdom, uh, which is just the opposite of our way of thinking. To enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again as a child of God. The born again child of God is then to remain childlike. And we see here that's not automatic. It requires a commitment or a decision on our part. Now, spiritual humility is, first of all, recognizing your personal sinfulness and unworthiness and inability to do anything at all to become worthy before God, to earn salvation wholly or partially. You have to come to the end of yourself and depend totally on God to save you in his mercy and forgiveness. You look to Jesus Christ as your savior who offered himself up as the perfect sacrifice for all sins. That's spiritual humility. 
Then, after you're saved, you continue to humble yourself, and that means you must consciously choose to approach life with the best qualities of an unspoiled child. What are some of those? Well, you'll humble yourself by choosing to depend upon the Lord the way a child must depend upon his or her father. You would humble yourself by choosing to obey the Lord the way a child ought to obey his or her father. You humble yourself by choosing to submit to the Lord the way a child ought to submit to his or her father. You humble yourself by choosing to trust the Lord the way a child ought to trust his or her father. Those qualities by no means exhaust the best of what it means to be childlike. We could add things like being teachable and being vulnerable. But those four are the ones that best communicate the spiritual qualities of childlikeness or the humility of childlikeness. Dependence, obedience, submission, and trust are choices you must make every day in your walk with the Lord. To the extent you choose them, you humble yourself and follow God's plan for your life rather than your own plan or someone else's plan. When you are first born again and become a child of God, you're in a childlike spiritual state. Coming to Christ and confessing and repenting of your sins, you are totally dependent upon Jesus to save you. You trust in him alone for eternal life. You want to submit to him and obey his every desire and command for you. You get right into his word to try and see how you can obey and where you can submit. It's as we grow older in the Lord that we begin to move away from this childlike state. One commentator put it like this. He said, it's easier to believe Jesus for eternal salvation than it is to depend on him for gasoline to put in your car. And that's, that's actually very true. So you start off with a total humility. You realize there's nothing you can do or could ever do to be saved, and you throw yourself on the mercy of God, trusting that Jesus can save you, and then you begin to walk with him in obedience and submission, and then sometime down the road, you wonder if he's really going to take care of you, if he's really going to come through for you. God, are you really there? You're still trusting him that he saved you for something huge and amazing. I mean, think about what it took for God to save you, but because he's not putting gas in your car, wow, where's God? And it's because we move from a childlike trust. I never worry. Now, I know everybody comes from a different family, and some of you had pretty terrible families growing up. I, I recognize that. But we're talking about an ideal situation. Uh, I never worried about whether there was going to be food on the table when I was a kid in elementary school or where my clothes came from. They came from Sears. But, uh, or any, I, I didn't think I was ever going to come home and be homeless or anything like that. Those things are all possibilities in the real world, obviously, and some of you have experienced them. But, but I had more of a, 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 you know, within the kind of crazy family, I had a normal childhood. And as a child, I just didn't worry about it. I didn't get up and on my way to Mrs. Kanega's third grade class think, is my house going to be there? When I, is there going to be dinner on the table? My clothes are falling off. My, will my dad have gas in his car? I didn't even think about any of those things. My dad thought about those things, worried about those things, worked hard for those things. And that's the illustration. Our dad is interested in those things. We don't need to be. It doesn't mean you're not going to ever have need or be in want or have difficulties because we live in a sick earth. But overall, 
we can depend upon and trust and submit and obey to the Lord. That's the childlike qualities that he wants us to have. And that's why I'm saying we need to get back to thinking of ourselves as little children. It's where we all started. I know life is serious and tragic. I know many of you have suffered or are currently suffering, but none of that can cancel out Jesus' love or the Father's care. And we're not just any child, we're his child, we're the one in whom he has begun a good work and he has promised to complete it. Now in verses five through 14, we wanna go forward treating everyone as little children. We start off well, as I said, but the world is a perilous place and both the devil and my flesh can interfere with my humbling myself to remain childlike. The remaining verses of our text instruct us about some of the perils we face going forward while waiting for the Lord. And so verse five, whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, by the way, it's okay to apply these verses to actual little children and to say Jesus loves little children because he does. But the little children he's talking about are the little ones who believe in me. He's talking about believers. This is a spiritual illustration. And so just, we wanna stay in the right context. The disciples, including us, have a mission while Jesus is away. We're to be his witnesses. We're to share the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. We're to just be Christians wherever God has scattered us out in the world. These two verses seem to describe two possible responses to our message. In fact, that's the way the verses are set up. It's kind of an either or. Either someone receives us as God's child and thus receives the Lord, or they will reject our message and reject the Lord. This phrase, whoever causes one of these little ones to sin, does not necessarily mean the believers are led to commit sin. The expositor's Greek Testament says, and I quote, it is the opposite of receiving. It would be treating someone harshly and contemptuously. Another version translates it like this. They say, whoever is a cause of trouble to one of these little ones who have faith in me. And so you're out in the world, you're living the Christian life. Some people will receive you and therefore receive the Lord. Others will reject you and they will cause trouble for you. Now, they might entice you to sin as a way of causing trouble for you to try and knock you down or to uh, get you to fail. That's one way of causing trouble, but it also has a broader application, that of rejecting you and with you the Lord and actively causing you trouble by persecuting you. The Lord says it would be better for that person to die a criminal's death before they had any opportunity to mistreat God's children. He's just telling you how serious it is to mistreat uh, those that bring the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, these two verses then are about the reception in this age that others give you as a born-again child of God. As I said, some will receive uh, him, most will not, and for them they face condemnation should they die in their sins. Uh, something to note in passing, something very precious. Jesus says that whatever is done to you, he says that's being done to me as well. He identifies with you that much. Jesus has an intimate connection with you. Whatever happens to you is happening to him. And, and that's a blessing 
when you're going through difficult times, to know that the Lord is not just with you, but he's feeling with you, he's empathizing with you, he's sympathizing with you, he has compassion for you. It's as if he was going through what you're going through. And you know what? As human beings, we, we need that, don't we? I mean, don't you look for somebody to help you in your times of need and stress and difficulty? You, that's why people have support groups. They have support groups for everything now, uh, you know? And, and, and there's nothing necessarily wrong or right about that. It just speaks of the need we have to have someone present with us to help us through these things. And Jesus says, hey, it's happening to me when it's happening to you. No one is as close to you as Jesus. Verse seven, woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. Instead of the kingdom of heaven on the earth, the devil remains loose on the earth, and the world system is antagonistic to us little children. That's this period of time we live in. It's not the kingdom of heaven. We're not establishing it. It is a hostile, we might say it's a hostile workplace for us uh, as we go out into the world. Thus, offenses must come, meaning the world holds peril for us so long as Jesus is away. William MacDonald writes, quote, the world, the flesh, and the devil are leagued to seduce and to pervert. He says, woe to that man by whom offenses come. That tells us that men will be held responsible for their beliefs and behavior. It can seem a small comfort or no comfort at all that God will one day call non-believers to account while they are allowed now to go unpunished but we must understand that their end is horrifying should they not be converted before their own death. We all, I'm I'm gonna say this, you may not agree with it, but we all love revenge. We wanna get our due right now. I can't think of any decent action movie that doesn't end with a long revenge sequence where the bad guy dies four or five different times in the most horrible way possible. And as much as you, you know, I mean, and the reason that works is because we're like, They set you up from the beginning. You hate this guy or this girl. I mean, they're terrible. They're horrible. They've done something that deserves judgment. And at the end, the hero gets to do it. Only God says, I'm the hero. I'll do it. I'll do it properly and perfectly after I'm done with all this world, after the great tribulation, after the millennium. You're not going to do it. In fact, you may just suffer. And these people are, they're gonna get away with it. You know what though? Some of them are gonna die in their sins and they're gonna find out it would have been better for them to have been condemned before they did some of that stuff because they face eternal condemnation. And that's why Paul could say, my light affliction, whatever it is that afflicts me now, whatever happens to me, it's a light affliction, it's but for a moment because I'm going to heaven. And the people that are afflicting me that I wish could be judged right now I need to get off of that and realize that if they don't come to Christ, their judgment is going to be terrifying, terrible and eternal. In fact, I shouldn't even hope for it. I should pray against it. And so we need to kind of adjust our thinking. I'm not saying you can't go see action movies, but just realize that at the end, it's eliciting your flesh. Um, (laughs) As if all that's not bad enough, you have yourself to contend with. Verse eight, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. Be better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it far from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Now Jesus is here referring to what the Bible calls the flesh. When we talk about the flesh, it isn't the actual physical members of your body we mean. 
It isn't your hand or your feet or your eyes. It is a principle you find left within you after you are converted. It is the tendency that's still in you to sin. Some people call it the old nature, but it's more properly called the flesh. It's just something that's left over after you're born again that desires to satisfy itself in sinful, lustful appetites. Your flesh utilizes the physical members of your body to try and satisfy its lust, but cutting off body parts can't overcome the flesh. That's why this is an illustration, not a recommendation. We don't have baptisms and then amputation services. If you'd like to be amputated, uh, see the deacons after church. If your hand or foot or eye was responsible for causing you to sin, you'd be better off cutting them off or plucking them out. That's what Jesus is saying. But obviously those things are not the reason. They're the instruments, but that's not why you sin. He's saying that the flesh should be dealt with just as radically as if you were amputating a limb or an eye to prevent you from sinning. Sin is serious. If a person dies in their sins without trusting Jesus Christ for salvation, they will be cast into the everlasting fire, cast into hell fire. Now these verses are not about a Christian who somehow forfeits his or her salvation on account of a lack of discipline. They are about two ways of life on the earth while awaiting the return of Jesus Christ. The unsaved person goes on living in the flesh, seeming to prosper and satisfy themselves, but in the end, they're going to perish eternally by being cast into hellfire. Meanwhile, the Christian denies his or her flesh, can therefore look like an amputee for their spiritual discipline, but they're living for something and for someone beyond this earth. Let me give you an illustration that uh, it, it may not work in every situation, but, but um, it, it's like this. Maybe you're at work and maybe there's a, a break room, you know, the water cooler, the proverbial water cooler that, or the, now it's the espresso machine that everybody hangs around. And, and so you, you come into there and, you know, you're in your workplace and, and uh, despite all the sensitivity training that you have to take now, there's always that group of people that's, that's telling the off-color joke, the dirty joke, they're, and, and they're trying to entice you. They know you're a Christian. They want to see how you're going to react to that because you're some kind of a prude to them. And, and, and essentially, in your reaction, you have the opportunity to maybe amputate your ear, spiritually speaking, by not listening, by walking away, by not reacting, those kinds of things. And then what happens? All those people in that little coffee clutch in your office, they look at you as you're some kind of a crippled amputee. They don't think this in their mind, but spiritually speaking, it's like, well, Gene has, he's like a deaf guy. He only has one ear. He doesn't have an eye. I put up this poster, you know, this, uh, you know, uh, inflammatory poster, and he won't look at it. He won't listen to this, he won't look at that, he won't touch this, he won't do that. And from, from their point of view, you're some kind of one-armed man. You know, you're in the office and your limbs are all falling off because they're trying to entice you to sin, they're trying to stumble you, they're trying to cause trouble for you, but you want to walk with the Lord and you say, Lord, I want to have a testimony here, I don't want to be drawn back into those kinds of things. That's what the Lord is talking about, two ways of life, one, the unsaved man, the other, the saved man, who while you're on this earth, you're gonna look like an amputee if you're practicing the disciplines of the Christian life. It's better to choose Jesus and appear to the world as a spiritual amputee 
than to remain unsaved and perish eternally. Sin, which brought death into the world and is punished by eternal suffering in hell, that's why Jesus Christ came into the world as a man and died in our place. He died so no one ever need perish on account of sin, and by his death and resurrection, he provides the power for you as a believer to overcome sin. Why would we then, as children of God, want to toy with sin? Jesus didn't die so we could sin a little or a lot and still go to heaven. He died and he rose again so we could be set free from sin so that we could yield our members to him rather than to our flesh. And that being the case, we ought to yield our members to the Holy Spirit rather than the flesh. We must therefore in constant discipline overcome the flesh, mastering it, maiming it, and mutilating it when necessary. It's better to be a believer and go forward in life maiming and mutilating your flesh, spiritually speaking, than to have remained in sin as a non-believer and perish eternally. Remember, Jesus is setting us up for life on earth while he's in heaven, and the earth is a pretty terrible place, a pretty perilous place, and all of us get tired of this kind of thing. We get tired, weary in well-doing, thinking, Lord, how much do I have to sacrifice? I mean, you know, it's, it's like a little weenie pity party that you get into. Oh, I have to sacrifice. They don't like me at work. I need a new job. My fellow employees don't like me. Well, good. Maybe you're doing something right if you're a Christian, and maybe it's they don't like you because you're a Christian. If they like you, you should be concerned. They think you're like them. Are you like them? You don't want to be like them. Be hated at work. <laughs> Sometimes we just, you know, we have these pity. Paul the Apostle, uh, Paul, if he wrote Hebrews, he said, to the Hebrews, he said, you haven't resisted to shedding blood yet. Have you, are you, any of you bleeding? Are any of you actually being persecuted by, to the shedding of blood? I mean, Paul, Paul was not a guy you wanted to have personal counseling with. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? I patterned my counseling after that, but anyway... Uh, it's like that scene in Jaws where the fellas are comparing their scars. You remember that? It's one of my favorite scenes in all the movies. They're the marks that tell the story of the choices that they made for the life that they led. Just so the spiritual amputations you choose when you deny rather than indulge your flesh, they tell your spiritual story. I keep being reminded of how childlike a person is who gets saved later in life. Old habits are abandoned, sometimes literally thrown in the trash. Some of you would have this testimony. You'd say, yeah, when I got saved, I threw away, might have been books or music or videos or alcohol or recreational drugs, some hobby or habit that was an idol. You literally threw it away. You got rid of it. Then over time, things that you once threw away and you were so excited to be free from, you start bringing them back into your life. You start toying with sin, the very sin that Jesus died to set you free from, that would have led you to perish eternally, but that you were glad to be away from. Now, it's up to you and I to decide in this area of liberty, things that I can do or bring into my life that are not sinful, uh, that are not stumbling me or others. I'm just recommending for all of us, myself included, we need to be careful that what we think is maturity is really just playing around with sin sometimes. We think, well, I'm mature, I can handle that. Is it something I need to handle? Or is it it's something I have the mastery over? Um, we just need to be careful about that because it's easy to go from that childlike state into something that is uh, less uh, precious. Uh, 
We're to pursue, pursue holiness, not revert to the flesh. We're to master and maim and mutilate sin, never try to manage it. We are waiting for the Lord with other little ones, other believers. And so now verses 10 through 14 encourage us to value each child of God as the Father does, despite their maybe being a little bit difficult or even a lot difficult. Verse 10, take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Do we each have a single guardian angel, a Clarence? I hope it's not Clarence, but probably not. But angels are God's messengering servants, and angels are always watching over us. So I don't think we have one particular angel, uh, but God's angels do watch over us. Despise can have a variety of meanings. It uh, can mean to look down upon. The best single word definition would be to disesteem. The idea is to esteem every other believer as a precious child of God to see them as God sees them. And so as Jesus is going through this section, he says, you know, here's some things to think about while I'm away. One of them is, you know, how unbelievers are going to treat you. Now here's you among believers and how you should treat one another. And he says, you should not disesteem one another. He says in verse 11, for the son of man has come to save that which was lost. While we were yet sinners and our phones were going off in rebellion against God, lost in our disgusting sin, with, get a better ringtone. But <laughs> I don't mind. If your, your phone is gonna go off in church, have a really cool ringtone. Something, you know, something that'll make me laugh. Everybody's gonna, hey. While we were yet sinners in rebellion against God, it just keeps you guys here longer because I forget where I'm at. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew 18. No, anyway. Jesus valued us enough to come into the world we had ruined to save us. How can I therefore not value each and every person for whom Christ died? And so now Jesus switches metaphors from the little child to the sheep. He says in verse 12, what do you guys think? If a man has 100 sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 90 and 9 and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that one sheep than over the 90 and 9 that did not go astray. Making sure the 99 are safe, the shepherd searches for the one who is straying. It's obviously a problem sheep. It put itself in danger and it put both the shepherd and the whole rest of the flock in danger but the shepherd won't write it off as a loss. I, hey, having never been a shepherd and not having to have depend upon you know, individual sheep, one out of 100, who cares? Do I really wanna risk my life fighting lions and bears and whatever else is out in the wilderness to find this one sheep? And the Lord says, yeah, that's the attitude you should have because if a shepherd so treats his sheep, how much more should we treat every one of God's dear flock? Now, we normally apply this to going after Christians who are sinning, and that's certainly a fine application. But the bigger teaching here is to value all of God's sheep the way that he does. Some of the 99 are less than desirable. They didn't stray, but you kind of wish they would. I mean, you know, I, sadly, I have to admit this to you. Sometimes I go to pastor's conferences, and pastors flippantly talk about blessed subtractions from your church. There are, you know, you always want your church to grow and be added to, but then there are always blessed subtractions, you know? And uh, we can laugh about that, but I think, I don't think Jesus is laughing. 
I think Jesus has a different attitude about that in terms of, now, doesn't mean we can't deal with people, doesn't mean people don't cause division or conflict and have to be dealt with. We're gonna see that in the next study uh, about church discipline, but Jesus says, hey, Gene, I died for that guy. You're gonna have to deal with that guy. You, have to, you can deal with him biblically, you can do what I said to do, but you can't write him off because I died for him the way I died for you, and you're pretty disgusting too, really. But that didn't stop me. Verse 14, even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Jesus supplies the parable of the lost sheep to the little ones he's been talking about, the born-again children of God. Jesus died on the cross so they would not perish. How can we treat them as if we didn't care? Charles Spurgeon put it like this. He said, we must not treat the poor, the obscure, the little gifted as though we thought they would be better out of our way or as if they were of no consequence whatever and could be most properly ignored. This is in a certain sense to make them perish for those whom we regard as nothing become to us as if they were nothing. Do you want to feel like a kid again? If you were saved later in life and you experienced a radical conversion, think back to the childlike faith you had when you received Jesus Christ. Get back to that dependence, to that obedience, to that submission, to that trust. Live there and don't grow out of it. And when you do, get back to it again and again and again. Maybe your conversion wasn't so radical. In fact, you may have gone on struggling for quite some time afterward, or maybe you were saved from a very young age when you were still a child, and so you don't have this kind of an experience, but you can still grasp what we're talking about. You can grasp what it means to be childlike. It's a very simple illustration to look at the best qualities of childhood and say, I am to choose that when I deal with life. Now, perhaps you've never come to the cross to confess and repent of your sins. You'd better do it today. God is not willing that you should perish, but apart from faith in Jesus Christ, you're gonna be cast into everlasting fire. You're gonna be cast into hell. And so uh, I was gonna say I don't wanna scare you, but I actually do wanna scare you. You need Christ, and you need to come to him in total dependence with absolute trust that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that there's no other way to be saved. Let's pray together.